I love Vacation Bible School. This is, uh, as you see, we're decorated for VBS today and, and uh, all over the church, not only, uh, not only here but in other classrooms as well. So we're preparing for that and uh, preparing our hearts for that as well. But I love Vacation Bible School. We were not able to have it last year. Uh, we've had some send home stuff for VBS. So it's been two years, so we're especially excited uh, this year, 200 plus kids that we know of so far have registered and about 50 workers so we'll be praying for them as well you've got a prayer guide there hopefully but I love Vacation Bible School because we have opportunity to share Jesus uh, harvest for uh, many of those that we believe that it will be a time in which many children come to know Christ this week we will plant seeds and others those who know Christ will be brought closer so it's an exciting time for us to come and uh, be able to be together. And it is truly something that we do for the community. Now we do hope all of our kids benefit, of course, Parkway kids, but we have lots and lots for the community, so uh, it is what we are to be doing as a church, to be able to do other things for the community. But I also love Vacation Bible School because we have an opportunity to make a mess and nobody really complains. But here it is. We're ready for that. And I, we've got these spears over here for just in case you start to fall asleep uh, during church. We'll be ready for you. Would you find in your Bibles Ephesians chapter 2? We're going to be reading verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 11. We are kind of joining in with our Vacation Bible School theme, which is Destination Dig, Unearthing the Truth About Jesus. So we really started last week, and we're taking it through the month of June as we are uh, continuing to look at, it's called Digging Deeper Archaeology in the New Testament, Discovering More About Jesus. And so there's a lot of words, and I can tell you're really excited about it, but it will be a time in which we will continue to make our trek, be able to discover more. Last week we took a look at this uh, picture. I don't know if you've got it there on your screen or not, but we got this picture that we used last week. Actually, this is uh, an important dig, having uh, important artifact having to do with uh, the New Testament. This is called P52 or Papyrus 52. It's believed to be the oldest written manuscript, written uh, not a manuscript. Manuscript would be the original writing, but written writing of the New Testament, and uh, it is on written on a piece of papyrus believed to be dated between 125 and 175 A.D. And uh, oldest that we have, not very big, but it has John 18 on one side, part of John 18 on the other side as well. So last week we talked about John 18. We talked about it and learned that Jesus is the truth. And what we learned from Jesus is that we're to have a passion for truth and also to be able to have a passion for God's people. Well, the discovery that we have for today is along that same trend, but it has to do with the temple in Jerusalem where Jesus and the disciples often walked through and often passed. We know that Jesus was dedicated in the temple just a few days after he was born there. Simeon and Anna recognized the baby Jesus as the promised Messiah. You might remember that Jesus came and he ran out all the money changers out of the temple and declared that God's temple would be called a house of prayer. On one occasion when uh, Jesus and the disciples were coming out of the temple, one of the disciples remarked about the magnificence of the temple. And the temple in which they were in, Jesus and the disciples, was actually the second temple. The first temple had been built by King Solomon of the Old Testament, of course, and it was just destroyed when uh, uh, Judah was taken into exile. And then around 500 B.C., Zerubbabel actually started building another temple, and it continued to be built. In fact, it was restored and refurbished by Herod the Great about 20 years before Jesus was born. That was the temple in which Jesus and the disciples continued to come and to be able to go. And when the disciple remarked about the magnificence of the temple, 
Jesus said, The temple that you see will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another, and I will rebuild the temple in three days. Of course, Jesus is talking about his resurrection. The temple that he would build would not be a temple that was built by human hands, but be a temple made up of living stones as well. Well, sure enough, uh, in A.D. 70, that temple that Jesus and the disciples had come and gone and seen many times, that temple was destroyed about some 37 years after Jesus died on the cross and rose again. The temple was destroyed with such devastation that there was not one stone on top of another. Hardly any stones were left at all. In fact, today we have hardly any artifacts from that temple. Anything that remains from the temple uh, was not known for a long time. But then in 1871, a French archaeologist discovered a limestone slab with a seven-line warning. This is a picture of that slab. And it is uh, today it's in the uh, Museum of Archaeology in Istanbul. But the sign reads, No foreigner is to enter within the uh, railing and enclosure around the temple, and whoever is caught will be responsible to himself for his subsequent death. There were small traces of red paint that were also found on this slab, believing that this was written in red for all to be able to see clearly. Now the foreigner refers to anyone who is non-Jewish. Around the temple area was the court of the Gentiles, and within the court was the inner court, which only Jews were allowed. There was literally a wall or a barrier keeping everyone out that was not Jewish. Well, when Jesus died on the cross... His purpose was to remove all barriers and allow access for all people to come to God and to make one kingdom. When you read in the New Testament about the, sometimes about the mystery of the, of the gospel or that which was made manifest. Manifest meaning that which was not known but now has been made known. The mystery of the gospel is this, that all people, everyone, can come to Jesus. In fact, if you're in Ephesians chapter 2, we'll read those in just a moment. But if you looked over to Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 6, it defines the mystery as the Gentiles, non-Jews, or fellow heirs, partakers of the same gospel promised in Jesus Christ. Our passage in Ephesians chapter 2, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Ephesus, Ephesus made up mostly of Gentiles, Ephesus being in what was then Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey. It describes in the last half of this chapter the wall that kept the Gentiles away from God and segregated them from the Jewish people. And Paul may have had in mind this very sign when he wrote the last half of the second chapter of Ephesians. Well, how does this help us to discover more about Jesus and about our relationship with Jesus? Oh, I'm so glad that you asked today. Because we want to use kind of a one-word theme today that's found in these verses. We're going to kind of dig down deep in the middle, and then look at the verses around them kind of as we go today. But I want you to take a look perhaps in your Bible, or I'll have them up there on the screen. Last part of chapter 15, Ephesians chapter 2, verse, last part of 15 and verse 16 says this, that he, Jesus, might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so that making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. So we're going to use that one word maybe to help to keep us uh, on track to where we're going today is the word reconcile is the verb. Reconciliation uh, is the noun. Biblically, reconciliation is the ending of the gap, the great gulf that exists between God and people because of sin. Christ's death 
on the cross reconciled us to God and all who had placed their faith in Jesus. And as we will discover, the death and the resurrection of Jesus also reconciles all people who would be estranged, whether it be because of race or nationality or economy or even estranged relationships maybe within your family or one-time friends. Now, we got an archaeology kind of thing going on here today and sometimes in archaeology they'll go through different layers in order to get to where it is that they want to go. So we're going to work our way through the scripture. I invite you to come along with me and for us together to be able to work through the layers of this scripture so that we might be able to understand about reconciliation in Christ and with one another. And as we do, we're going to talk about these three layers, your life before reconciliation, before you knew Jesus, the impact of reconciliation, what's different now, and your life after reconciliation. So I invite you to come along as we look at the first layer, and that is your life before reconciliation, before you knew Jesus. Let's read verses 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11 says this. It says, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. And verse 12 reads, Remember that you were one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in this world. Now, I want you to notice at the beginning of both of these verses, there's a common word that is used, and it is the word remember. We're called on, or Paul wrote to these Gentiles about calling on them to remember. Much of Christianity and much of what we do today is about remembering. We had the Lord's Supper last week, and as we did, we remembered the body and the blood of Jesus, what Christ did for us. We're having uh, multiple baptisms next week. And as we have baptisms, of course, the one being baptized is already remembering what has happened because already they've made a change. Jesus has come into their life, and it's a picture of what is taking place in the death, burial, and the resurrection. And when somebody is baptized, you remember your baptism. If you know Christ and you've been baptized, you remember what that is about. Uh, we remember the past and from what we were saved. We want to remember Bible stories. We want to remember lessons that we've learned along the way. You know, the Bible says that we have the Holy Spirit living inside each one of us. And one of the functions of the Holy Spirit is to remind us about the teachings of Jesus and what we've learned from God's Word. So it's appropriate that Paul asked these primarily Gentile Christians to remember. And they remember that they are Gentiles. And at one time they were called an insulting name by the Jews. They were called the uncircumcised. In fact, Paul spends one verse talking about the circumcised versus the uncircumcised in Ephesians. But in Paul's letter to the Romans, he spends much more time, particularly in Romans 2, to go into a lot more detail. And Paul said there's nothing wrong with this outward sign of a relationship with God, but what is needed is to be matched by an inward faith and being obedient to God, or it was worthless. Moving on to verse 12, Paul makes a list of five negative characteristics or descriptions of their past that he wanted them to remember. Now remember, Paul's writing to that church in Ephesus made up of mostly Gentiles. And so if you've got your notes there, you might notice there's a checklist of five things that are there. We're just taking these from those from that verse 12 here. They were one time separated from Christ. Sometimes the word there is excluded from Christ. In uh, chapter 4 and 18 of Ephesians, as well as Colossians 1.18, it says that they were alienated. 
As far as knowing Jesus, they were as aliens from another world. Also, they were excluded or alienated from citizenship in Israel. We, in the ESV or other translations, said they had no part in Israel or God's plan for Israel. They were as foreigners. And then we see that they were strangers to the covenants of the promise. Now, covenants could mean in general terms or it could be specifically talking about the promise in the Old Testament. There's a covenant made to Abraham, one to Moses, to David. There was a new covenant we found in Jesus. A covenant is a promise, so they knew nothing and had no benefit coming to them. Now think of all the promises that are in the Bible, all the promises of the Old Testament, the New Testament. Paul writes to them, said, before Christ, said, none of these were yours. They were without hope. No hope of escaping the human condition without Christ. They were without God in the world. They had other gods, but they did not have the God, the one and only. And in the world, that phrase kind of emphasizes a purposeless and useless existence. They could not know God. It could be said that they had no past, no present, no future, no hope and no God until they met Jesus. Well, that sounds pretty grim, doesn't it? But it's the same situation for each one of us. Before knowing Jesus, the Gentiles were these things. Well, before Jesus, you were separated from Christ. You did not know Him. The Bible says that we were enemies of Christ. You were excluded or alienated from Israel. Now the Bible says that we are the new Israel. You were strangers to the covenants, particularly the new covenant that is found in Christ, that all those who put their faith in Him, all those who believe become children of holy God. You were without hope. You were without God in this world. It was just as grim for the Gentiles in the first century as it was for you and me before we met Christ. So we should remember. We should remember for the purpose of being grateful. But we also want to remember for the sake of reconciliation. Now reconciliation has to do with relationships. And first and foremost is our relationship with God. So we know that these have to do with our relationship with God. It has to do with our relationship with others, as we'll see even more in the verses as we dig through and work along these verses. And even has to do with your relationship with yourself, having a healthy self-image. The Bible says that we are now, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus, you are now in Christ. You know Him. We are a new creation. So look at that list again, separated from Christ. Excluded, alienated from Israel, strangers to the covenants, without hope, without God in this world. They affect every kind of relationship. Even people who find satisfaction from what this world has to offer will find that it is short-lived or that it is headed for destruction. Let's take a moment and remember, as Paul asked us to do, even if you were saved in an early age or raised in a Christian home in light of these verses, think for a moment from what or from where you were saved. How would you describe it? Now, today if you don't know Jesus as your Savior and Lord, or if you're listening today live stream and you don't know Christ as Savior and Lord, these things as described in verse 12, these five that we've listed here today, this is where you stand before you know Christ. And we invite you today... And it is today that the Lord wants to give an open door for you to be able to become not strangers, but instead to know Christ so that you might be able to walk with Him. I used to be jealous maybe of other people's dramatic testimonies that folks could give. So I'd give a testimony with something like, I was lost in following sin's dark pathway, trying everything that this world had to offer until I reached the age of seven. Well, 
the truth is, there was a time that even though I was raised in church, there was a time I knew about Jesus, but I didn't know Him personally. And I need to realize that I was a sinner and I was in need of having a relationship with Him. We to remember this same description found in verse 12 is true of all of us. Now, let's dig even deeper. Next level as we go even deeper, here's the impact of reconciliation. Now the impact of reconciliation can be understood from the verses we're about to read in two ways. One of those ways could be understood that Jesus brought the Jews and the Gentiles together and He reconciled both to God. But a better way of understanding it is Jesus brought Jews and Gentiles together by reconciling both to God. Let's read chapter 13. We'll just kind of take this verse by verse to help us to be able to understand. Verse 13 says, But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul talks about those who are far away and those who are near. He's talking particularly about the Gentiles who were far away and the Jewish people who were brought who were near. Now, near probably nearer would be better because all of those were lost before they knew Christ. But near is in the sense that they have access to the Scripture and the temple and knowing about God's plan. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 14 says this. So we talked about the impact. For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Verse 15 says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that He might create in Himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. Now, Christ made the two one. Who are the two? Two different nationalities or races that were taking place, Jews and the Gentiles, he brought reconciliation. He brought down the wall. Now you've probably studied in Sunday school or heard in Bible study somewhere in the temple area there was the court of the Gentiles and the court of the Jews. Anybody or any man could walk in the court of the Gentiles. But no Gentile was to walk into the inner court or any further under the threat of death. Paul may have been thinking about that temple in Jerusalem and even this sign. Let's show the sign again. Even this very sign, one of the few things that were left from that temple that was destroyed uniquely and strangely found, maybe to remind us why Christ came and His purpose in ours. I'm, I'm fairly convinced, fairly well convinced that Paul was thinking about the temple as it was still standing in his day and this time of writing particularly since he talks about another temple by the time we get to the end of the chapter. But he also has in mind the wall of hostility being the law of the Jews. law of the Jews had to do with the Old Testament as well as their man-made laws, the laws that they made up. And in their minds, they felt like they followed the law of the Old Testament and the laws that they had made up. We know that nobody follows it perfectly, but they thought that they were, they thought that they were following it well enough and they felt superior to the Gentiles who did not have the law and did not keep it. Well, I, won't, don't want you to, I don't want to lose you here as we talk about walls and laws, but if you have your notes, you might want to write this down. Jesus tore down the wall by fulfilling the law. Boy, it almost rhymes, but just enough to be a little bit of a tongue twister. That's what verse 15 tells us. In fact, in the English Standard Version, which we're reading, it says He abolished the law. Now, that that doesn't mean that we don't still seek to keep God's commands, even some of those of the Old Testament, but we know that there are some things in the Old Testament that we follow, some things that we don't follow. 
Well, maybe this will help us to understand or to distinguish between the two. We know that there were ceremonial laws. These were mainly ritual dietary laws that were for the Old Testament Israel that most we do not follow, have no need to follow on this side of the cross. Even some of those things that have to do with the Sabbath. And then there's what's called the civil law, that which is good for all time and anywhere. Uh, most of the Ten Commandments are the civil law. Things that should always be true. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Obey your parents all time and anywhere. But most important for us is that we're told, particularly in the New Testament, there is the law of Christ. How do you know which laws to follow the Old Testament which laws not? Well, Jesus told us, when you think of the law of Christ, what do you think of? Well, Jesus said the most important was love the Lord thy God, and the second was love thy neighbor as thyself. And so it helps us to be able to know which laws to follow if they're following love God and love others. Now, that doesn't mean that we do less than what was required in the Old Testament. In fact, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus talked a lot about the commandments of the Old Testament, well, you know that Jesus did not ask for less. Instead, he often asked for much more. Well, how did Jesus tear down the wall by fulfilling the law? Jesus met the demands of the law. No one could keep the law and no one was worthy but Jesus. But also, the law required a sacrifice. The Bible says, for the wages of sin is death. A death had to be paid and only Jesus was worthy. Only He was the one who was not guilty. He did all that was required. Last part of verse 15 says, thus making peace. So we know that God is the God of peace. He wanted to make peace so that we might have peace with God's holiness and also allowing for peace with one another. I mean, in their way of thinking, the ones that Paul's writing to, there's only two nationalities, there's Jews and Gentiles. And the Jews thought of the Gentiles as unclean, scavenging dogs. And the Gentiles thought of the Jews as conniving religious hypocrites. It would be virtually impossible to get these two groups together. Oh, I want you to be able to notice what Jesus did because He didn't say, now this group sure needs to try to get along with that group. Or he didn't say, y'all just try to do the best you can, maybe try to get along and get together as you did. No, instead, he created a new people, a new nation, a new race, a better race. And what, what's a good name for this better race? What's a good name for... It's the church. It's what Christ created for us. It's what, it's what he ordained. It is the New Testament body of Christ. Verse 16 kind of help us a little bit with this as well as we talk about the impact. Last part. It's the last part of the long sentence that began in verse 14, but it says, and you could put in there, you could insert the name Jesus. Jesus might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Kind of paints the picture maybe of uh, someone being able to have access to the king or the emperor. And the Lord's made that possible. I don't want you to lose the significance of this short verse. Did you, do you notice anything different about this verse? Who's the him in there? It's, it's Jesus. What else is talking about? Not only Jesus, but thereby made us both to God in one body, reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. We know that what Christ has done for us has allowed it so that we might be able to know Him. It emphasizes the impact. Once people are reconciled to Jesus, the hostility has been destroyed. I've been asked more than once over the last year, 
when it comes to uh, racial hostility in our nation. What, uh, what am I doing about it? Or what is our church doing? Now, there's, there's no doubt that we could do more. But the answer is that we're going to continue to tell people about Jesus. And when people are brought to Jesus, the hostility is destroyed. Now, she still as believers... We're to live and love all people like Jesus. We're still learning and need help for that. But Christ promised it is possible. Not only is it possible, but the only answer to the hostility that is happening in our nation or anywhere around the world is found in Christ. Notice verse 17. It says that He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Well, who was far away and who was near? The Gentiles are far away. The Jewish people are near and sense that they had access to the good news and though most rejected Jesus. What did Jesus preach? He preached peace. When we preach or when we teach or when we tell others about Jesus, we preach peace. We're certainly for peace with others. We know that it often takes two, but we're to strive to do our best to be at peace with all people, particularly those who are of the family of faith. Romans 12 and verse 18 says, if it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. So, you're to do your part, regardless of whether somebody else does their part or not. And when it comes to being at peace with God, there's a sense in which it is totally up to us. Meaning that our God has done everything necessary in Christ. So if you find that you're not at peace with God, know that everything has been done and the Lord is waiting for you to respond. Verse 18. For through Him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. Here we have Jesus is the one that He's talking about. We have access to the Holy Spirit and access to the Father. While the word Trinity is not used in the Bible, we have certainly a picture of the Trinity here. We know God is one. And we know Him in three persons, Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the Trinity reminds us of that unique relationship we have with the Heavenly Father, the life and the work of Jesus, and the Holy Spirit living in each one who claims Christ as Lord. But in reality, while the Trinity might be hard sometimes to explain, what is happening here, God, we know Him as the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, God is giving you access to Himself. These verses and the one to come actually are helping to describe to us the theology of the church. Speaking of remembering, the movie Remember the Titans, true story about busing and racial integration in Alexandria, Virginia, and a winning football team. The the movie that came out in the year 2000 about what happened in the 70s and we're still talking about in 21. Is everybody with us and what we're talking about? There's one particular scene where Coach Boone, played by Denzel Washington, he walks out onto an empty football field the night before his first game, and he says, this is my church. And probably defining, or he's saying that's what defines him. It's the place he's meant to be. An actor could step out on the stage and probably say the same thing. Everybody has a church, a place that defines them, and they're given access. For some people, sometimes it is a bar. Sometimes people want to go where everybody knows their name. For others, it's a classroom. For believers, it could be a place even here, but it should be, your church and mine should be a biblically-based spiritual place which defines us 
and where we're given access to God and a common bond with other believers and we're doing it what is necessary to be at peace with both. Oh, I hope you're catching all the good stuff that is happening here. But there's another level as we continue to dig our way through of discovery. And it is your life after reconciliation. Ephesians chapter 2, 19, 20, and 21. It's one long sentence Paul likes to write in long sentences. Verse 19 says this, So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Verse 20 says, But built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. Now that you have been reconciled to Jesus, you have made peace with Him, and we're to make peace with all who know Him. Now, remember verse 12 that we read, the checklist. that We were once strangers and aliens, but not anymore. According to God's Word, you are one nation. You're one kingdom. We're all citizens together of a new, better nation and a kingdom. It doesn't matter where you came from or the color of your skin or your social or economic status. We are one in Christ. Let's be sure to act like it. Now, sometimes America is called a melting pot, sometimes a mosaic. But in truth, sometimes, at least with Americans, sometimes the mosaic's not all that pretty. Sometimes it's downright ugly. Well, let it not be ugly in God's kingdom. Why do you think Paul wrote these words? to that church in Ephesus in the first century. Maybe because they're not always acting like it. There was work to be done. Well, what about the 21st century church? Maybe there's work to be done. Unity does not happen automatically. But Jesus made peace and unity possible. According to God's Word, you are one nation and one kingdom. According to God's Word also, you are one family. We read in these verses, one, the household of God. I'm thankful I'm a part of this church family. I thank the Lord for it every day. But this tells us the importance of belonging to a local church. Yes, if you're a child of God, you're part of a universal church. But only by being an active member and participant in a local body of believers can you experience family warmth, caring, and love. Still, sometimes it happens to you. You'll be in a place, maybe you'll be in an environment where you may not feel all that comfortable and maybe you'll meet somebody maybe for the first time and somewhere you discover that they're also a part of the family of God, that they're also a believer. Ah, and you'll realize maybe they understand you or maybe you understand them because you're all part of God's family. The Bible tells us that we're one nation, one kingdom. The Bible tells us that we're one family, but also According to what Paul tells us, we are one temple. Now, the Bible often talks about our bodies being a spiritual temple that houses the Holy Spirit, but in this case, he's talking about all those who make up the living stones, all those who are part of the temple of God, also known as the church. Now, why do you think Paul might mention the temple? Well, maybe he's thinking about that temple in Jerusalem and this sign of segregation that we've talked about, known and knowing in Christ that that barrier no longer exists. Wouldn't be long before that temple did not exist. <clears throat> well, the people in Ephesus, they had a temple also. Paul writes that church in Ephesus was Asia Minor at the time, now in modern day Turkey, but they had the temple of Artemis, also called the temple of Diana. 
that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world that they were pretty proud of. And so he says, there's a temple greater than the temple in Ephesus. There's a temple greater than the temple in Jerusalem. And it's still being built. It's still growing. Did you notice when we read a moment ago, the temple that makes up the body of Christ, who's the cornerstone? Christ Jesus. Foundation laid by apostles and prophets. This temple made up of living stones, each a member of the household of God. It's the most important temple ever built. So let's ask the question, why is participation and unity in His church so important? Last verse. You knew we'd get to it. The last verse in that chapter is verse 22. And it says this, and it helps us. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We're being built together. We're making up the body of Christ. The temple of which you are a part, if Jesus is your Savior and Lord, this is where God dwells. This temple, not the brick or the mortar of this building, but in you and me. This is where the Spirit of Jesus is doing His best work. It's important. It's important for community. All are in need of community. We need brothers and sisters to help us do life. It's a need of support in our daily tasks, support that we need every day, and in our greatest crises, you need the support of a loving church family. It's important because of accountability. We need each other to hold one another accountable and give encouragement and at times speak the truth in love when necessary. It's important when it comes to celebration. You want people to celebrate with you answered prayers and accomplishments and where God is at work. You need to be able to mention the milestones that are happening in your life so that you might be able to mention that and might be able to celebrate that with other believers. Don't let Facebook take the place of what you need to be doing with others in church. It's important for kingdom building because you were meant to use your gifts to help build God's kingdom. We have a common mission, make more disciples. It's the reason we exist as a church, to be the hands, feet, and mouthpiece of Jesus. It's important for diversity. We celebrate diversity. We're not all alike. Thank goodness how boring life would be. And here, this is where you learn to love all kinds of people. Now, if you were born with or you were raised to hate or disrespect anyone, this is where you learn to love. We celebrate different. Now, we realize some people are more different than others, and that's okay. You like traditional worship, you like contemporary worship. As long as it's in Christ, praise God. It may be even with this summer that you end up being in a worship service, maybe that wouldn't be your normal, maybe not your preference. Well, learn to rejoice diversity. in a day when church membership seems to be not all that important. It seems to be downplayed. Here we have the Apostle Paul and we have the New Testament reminding us the importance of being a member of the body of Christ. And here's the best reason why participation and unity in this church is so important. It's because the church holds the hope of the world exclusively. Christ has chosen this church And every local Bible-believing, Christ-centered church to be the means by which we have responsibility to share the good news and the hope 
that is only found in Jesus. It's no other people, there's no other group, there's no other organization out there that is doing this. Christ has chosen us. And it's needed just as much today, maybe even more so than needed in the first century. Don't you want to be part of the solution? Well, join with other believers as we join Christ in His great work. Thank you for coming along on this uh, biblical, archaeological dig today so that we might discover and know more about Christ and we might know more about our relationship with Him. Let's pray today. Father, we thank You for this opportunity and we thank You that we can come into Your house and offer worship and be able to hear from Your Word. We thank You, Lord, for how You continue to be at work and we thank You, Father, for Your goodness to us. And Father, we pray that even today, that today that we might be ready to follow along with understanding, remembering what you have done. We thank you for the impact, Father, of being reconciled. And we pray that because we've been reconciled, that we might be able to lead others and show others the light of your love wherever we go. We pray, Father, today, if there's someone here, someone listening today that does not know you as Lord and Savior, that even today, even during this time of prayer before done today, they might not be able to ask Christ to forgive them of their sins and ask Jesus to come in. May you continue to be at work as we finish our service today. But may we continue, Father, always seeking you. It's in Christ's name we lift these prayers. Amen.